Welcome back to another episode of Fight in Progress, a podcast conversation about our men and women in law enforcement and the challenges they face. With lead stress coach and founder of Under the Shield Foundation, Susan Simmons, and Arizona police officer, Ace Walker. All right, welcome to Fight in Progress, Ace. Nice to have you back here with us again. You Mm -hmm. keep showing up every week. I guess that means you're back for good. I'm stuck. There's like an invisible contract somewhere. Somewhere. Bound to this. That's it. Can't help it. We have a very interesting guest today that I'm, I don't know if he would agree with me, but I'd like to think he's my friend also. Well, since I we, haven't learned anything else. It's that everyone should agree with you. Well, that is true. You're, <laughs> you're getting there. You're learning this lesson at a young age. Young so it's man. only been a year and a half. I know, but it took me how many times I have to beat you and yell and scream at you. <laughs> but you're learning faster than some of the others anyway. But today we have officially commander charles mount but we're going to call him chuck for the benefit of of this because again he's my friend we share treadmills (laughs) every morning at the gym this is the chuck this is chuck this is chuck yes this is one of the gym rats oh i have heard about you that i meet in the mornings all good things all good things (laughs) that's good (laughs) (laughs) only because i haven't learned anything bad yet but we're working on it that's what today's for yeah, so welcome, Chuck. We're Thank honored you. to have you on the podcast today. Okay, and I appreciate I was it. Telling you, you were on a long list of some pretty prominent people, so it was only fitting that we have you here because you've only been in law enforcement like what seventy-five years. I look that way. I'm in July. <laughs> I will hit my forty-second year. What is wrong with you? I have no idea. Longer than what I thought. What is wrong with you? Uh, apparently, I just can't walk away from it. I worked for the Phoenix Police Department for 32 years. I retired in 2011, and I, like many officers, I went through a divorce after my retirement. No, we never hear about that. Yeah, and I was married for 30 years. So uh, when that happened, there's a pretty severe financial consequence to a divorce. So I ended up so going back to work, and I thought, you know what, I still have a little bit of energy so mm-hmm. uh i worked for the state for about a year and a half as an investigator and then i got hired by maricopa community colleges it's a very small agency here in the valley and tell us about the exciting things you're doing there because i understand that'll take about 20 seconds it is uh i equate it to being a cop in mayberry it's <laughs> it's not high stress uh we do a lot of like door unlocks and things like that so it's kind of a learning curve leaving Phoenix and going to work for the community colleges, but it's like a highly... you know what, I enjoy it, and uh, <laughs> the people appreciate the service that we try to provide. It's like them. a highly skilled, highly organized security team. We, we do. We, <laughs> we try to do some other stuff. We That's do awesome. some training, you know, active shooter training, obviously, and other things, but it is uh, an easy, enjoyable job. And everybody's probably retired from somewhere else for the most part. Many. Many of our workforce are like me. They did a career somewhere. A lot of uh, Mesa police, Phoenix police, uh, state patrol. And then we have a small number of employees that have been there for their uh, entire career. We have a lieutenant that has worked for the agency for 32 years. Wow. It's a long time. That is a long time. A long, long time. Maybe we should have him on the show. He might be a real specimen of well, something kind of different. I mean, the first question that comes to mind is why? <laughs> like, so what, like, and not that I don't love it. I love law enforcement. Like, I'm obsessed with it. It's like my favorite thing to do. But Which is why he's not I, doing it. I couldn't <laughs> imagine, I couldn't imagine, like, getting to my retirement mark 
and you know maybe a few more years or like if we had drop still or something like that but 42 that's a long time that's like an entire lifetime dedication to this craft is it just what you wanted to go back and do or were there other things you wanted to do or not not really i mean i i have enjoyed uh i had a great career with phoenix and i got to do a, a lot of different jobs that i truly enjoyed i've never understood officers that talked about getting burned out because there's so many different things i worked on phoenix's swat team it's called the special assignments unit i was a, a sergeant there for nine years Mm -hmm. uh, an opening came up as the bomb commander for Phoenix PD. I went to that. <laughs> That's what we're that. going to analyze. And we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about people who want to play with bombs. Well, you know what? It isn't really playing with bomb bombs, but the thing that I enjoyed is just an intriguing, it's kind of a, a mental exercise. Uh, it's, it's not like SWAT where you have to hurry and put plans together. Normally, on bomb calls, you have time to kind of work as a team, make good decisions. You hope. Uh, and I, I enjoyed it. It was kind of like playing a game of chess. Yeah, we had a, a sergeant that came from Pima County or Pinal County. I don't remember which. And he was the reconstructionist for their bomb team down there. And that guy was so smart, so clever. He, he was just like what you're saying. He could just break something down and tear it apart. He was great to have discussions yeah, with. Yeah, when I was there, I was probably on the back of the bus as far as the <laughs> IQ. But uh, yeah, I had a bunch of very capable people. Yeah. And it's it's a fabulous job. Plus, you get to work a lot of amazing events, you know, large sure. sporting events. Oh, I've for done sure. three Super Bowls. I've worked a World Series. Um, and it's just, it's enjoyable. I like planning, special event planning. is something that I kind of developed uh, an understanding of what needed to be done and I felt that I was good at it so I, I couldn't really wander off too far law enforcement is something that I've done a long time so that's what I stuck with yeah, yeah I keep waiting to walk into the gym and Chuck is now the greeter at the gym <laughs> I, I that think that's going to be his next career because he's you're you're are actually talking about retiring again I am I'm I'm looking at the end of the year I'm hitting an age that's kind of uh I just realize I'm not a young man anymore. And honestly, when it comes to skills, shooting skills, uh, I broke my foot at the gym on March 8th, you know, strange mishap. I was off work really for the first time in my career for 11 weeks. I'd never done that in wow. my entire career. I came back and the first day that I came back to work, I had to run out and shoot a qualification on a rifle and a handgun. And at my advanced age, I can tell you my skills are not what they once were. I actually used to be a good shot. I was the top shooter in my police academy, but that was back in 1979. So I realized I can look at myself in the mirror and I realize I'm not a young man. And I do think that for regular policemen out there on the streets, uh, it's a job that really you need to have some energy. You need to be young. And I, I don't have those things, but I still enjoy it. Sure. But I think that you're and not to say don't retire. You do what you feel is right for you. But the expertise and the the seasoning that you get over all 42 years. I mean, you have some leadership qualities that I'm sure people would die to learn. Like, oh, let's it, put him in for chief somewhere. Right. I got some places. I want He's to like, be please. Chief. No, maybe, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm going to retire this fall. <laughs> no, I still will do something. I still like being uh, involved in training and, and talking to different people. I have several friends that are 20, 30, 40 years younger than me. <laughs> and it's fun. I've mentored a guy that works for the Phoenix Police Department 
Now he recently got promoted to sergeant, and I like meeting with him and talking. He worked on the special assignments unit as an officer. And really, that's your legacy. Mm -hmm. When you leave and you have your Tupperware container of your <laughs> badges and all the I love me plaques. And, and literally, when I left Phoenix, uh, it seemed that my retirement party lasted two hours. I filled up two gigantic Tupperware buckets of things that different agencies gave me. Nice. Uh, that, I guess that makes you feel that maybe you were important. But to me, I'd rather have my legacy be passing on information and, mm -hmm. and stuff to people that are still out there doing it. Um, that's important, and I think that's something now that we're going to really be lacking because people are, I, I saw yesterday, I think it was, that police retirements are up 49% across the country. And I said, I think with this environment and the way officers are being treated and stuff, people are wanting to get out and be gone, be done, don't want to look back, don't want to have anything to do with it. And I think we're going to lose a lot of that passing on information and mentoring people because of this. So yeah. we may need to bring you back again, Chuck. You may have to go back to Phoenix and, and have your own mentoring program because you might be the only one doing it. No, it's sad because uh, for listeners that maybe don't live in the state, we have a program called DROP the Deferred Retirement Option Plan. Mm -hmm. And for most officers on Phoenix, when I during my career, everyone got to a certain point, entered drop. You can work for a maximum of five years in that program. And now when I talk to people that are still back there, they're getting their 20 years on and they're leaving. Uh, the newer guys yeah. can't retire at 20 years. They what? have to go to 25. 25. So it's changing and like you said, when these people exit the door you have all that experience and and honestly it's uh it's tough to fill that and they're walking away from a lot of money which i think says speaks volumes because really five years in drop could be the equivalent of what up to three four hundred thousand dollars yeah. easily or higher or i mean higher. we had some chiefs that uh, they left with you know way over a half a million dollars in drop so right. There's got to be a, normally money is kind of a motivator for sure. all of us. But when you've done 20, you'd think do five more and come out with that kind of money. But they're going, I want to go to Home Depot and just sell sinks. Well, in, in case <laughs> you haven't watched the news, we're under, it's a difficult job it on is. its best day. It is. And now it seems as though everybody thinks they can do the job better than you. Oh, you mean the Facebook police that it, ta they don't exactly. really know what they're talking about? No. Is that what you're saying? No, it, it's just tough. And I think some people, um, they've realized money is not everything. That's true. It, it is a motivator. But sometimes you look at just your mental health and you're like, you know what? I'm I'm done with this. Sure. I'm going to do my yeah. career. I'm not doing drop. And I'm going to go do something else. Sure. I well, was at Home Depot. I'm doing a project at my house, <laughs> repainting it. And oh, you're I bumped handy, in, too. I am handy. I bumped into a guy that I hadn't seen in 10 years, and he recognized me. Apparently, I haven't changed too much. I'm too old to remember his name. But I asked him what he was doing, and uh, he left at the same time frame, and he started flipping homes. He's good at doing some, some construction work, so he's knocking down interior walls and freshening up things. And you know what? It's not police work, but he enjoys it. He's go. making some money. Sure. And uh, you just got to find, I think you still have to be active. Well, I worry yeah. about all these guys truly that come in, and, and I get where they're coming from. 
and they're saying, I just want to go to work at Lowe's, Home Depot. Nobody gets mad at you if you don't have a sink because you can order it and have it shipped to their house. But I do have great concerns. That, that sounds good right now, but six months in, when, when they've had a little distance from the job, because that caregiver and adrenaline junkie is still there. And that's not going to be satisfied. Yeah. And I think that's why people stay in this line of work as long as, like you have and others. Um, but people are getting out, and then I think they're going to turn around and go, ah, maybe that wasn't the best decision. Because some of them are pretty young and don't really have an idea what they're going to do. They just know they want out. Well, I think right. most of the time we, at least like for me, right? <clears throat> I was only in for four years, and I dedicated a lot of my time. And he looked and seventy-five effort. at least. <laughs> <laughs> four years. And I, when I was like removed, right, not by my own choice, it felt like my whole purpose yes. was taken. Right, like I didn't have purpose anymore. Right. So, and I could understand that when you retire, you have a different mindset. Like, oh, I'm just gonna like I want to do this, right? Like my thing was woodworking. Sure. Oh, I'm gonna woodwork. You That'll be that great. Was gonna be, yeah, yeah your that lasted job. like a month and a half, yes. and I was like, I, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> I I want to drive fast, kick down doors, and chase bad guys again. I'm sick of this, and it was it, because I just felt driven to that purpose, and I feel like that's hard. Like, did you go through that at all when you retired from Phoenix before you started with the state? I did. Yeah, and sadly, I mean, I could talk about it wasn't all good. My right. my career, I didn't ever really get in trouble. And I was there 32 years with Phoenix. You, mean, you didn't get caught. Well, <laughs> I, I didn't do things Statute that could have gotten me in trouble. Statute of uh, limitations. The worst, worst <laughs> thing that happened to me was I had a bomb truck that was assigned to me. And one day after work, I took my bomb truck to a golf course and played golf. <laughs> came out and uh, somebody had broken into it and a bunch oh, of equipment no. was stolen. So I took some severe criticism on it. I ended up receiving some discipline. But I was on call out. 24-7. Right. Um, for guys that worked on bombs and SWAT and, and things like that, uh, the mistake that I made is a lot of my identity was yes. tied into my career. Sure. And then when your career ends, you know, you ask yourself, what is my identity? Yes. So. Uh, That's hard to balance in those specialty units, especially. I, you know, the young guys in patrol, I see them and I think, yeah, hopefully they'll kind of wean out of that. But those specialty units, because it isn't like they can call you out when you're SAU and it's the middle of the night or whatever, and you go, oh, call somebody else. You know, no. I don't feel like it today. Yeah, that's what you no, I could, I could tell you some stories of, for me, the mission was always job number one. Yeah. It was higher than my faith in God. It was higher than my marriage. And that, that was a contributing factor no. as to why, after 30 years, my first wife thought that she had probably had enough. Sure. I, I left one time. I was uh, at the time I was the bomb commander for Phoenix PD. It was our anniversary. I had made arrangements for another supervisor to cover, mm -hmm. and we were going out for our anniversary at a nice place up in Scottsdale. While we were driving there, there was a bomb call that came in on my phone, and we had the old phones issued to us. And I saw that it was communications, and I'm I told them, "Hey, I'm en route for dinner." Uh, it's our anniversary, and they said, uh, well, we tried the person that you got. He forgot that he was covering for you tonight. Oh, he's at a Diamondbacks game, oh. and he's had several beers. He oh. didn't drive down there, but he's with his wife and friends. I looked at my wife. She was listening to the conversation, and I had to turn the vehicle around and go home. On bombs, uh, I was the only uh, supervisor. My lieutenant 
could cover for me and um, just a very limited number of people that I could defer to. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But uh, I, I made mistakes of leaving uh, children's birthday parties. Mm -hmm. You know, you got standby. My ego, I could have traded out my standby during those hours of the party. But, you know, I was so worried about my team and wanted to make sure they made it home at night. And uh, what a fool was I. Yeah, but you also don't, you, you train and train. And it isn't like you have a bomb five times a day, five days a week. And so you train and train and train. And when it happens, you're kind of like, oh, this might not happen again for a while. I need to get involved in this. It's like snipers on SAU. Right. You know, I, one of the funniest debriefings that I ever did in Alabama was where uh, the longtime sniper had been on the rifle on a call out and they pulled him, time ran, they pulled him, put the new kid on 10 minutes later, the new kid got the green light and the old timer in debriefing, I looked at him, I said, you are so pissed, aren't you? And he just erupted because yeah. he had waited years for the opportunity Right. because that's what you train to do. You do. And so it, it is, it, it's, a, it's a conflict and this is why we're so big on families being trained to understand what that internal conflict looks like. Because again, it isn't like you were, it was a call that you could have handled 10 times in a day. No, I think there, it isn't all bad in the law enforcement arena. Right. If I look at when I came on in 79, and we'll look at officer-involved shootings, we'll start there. Sure. Um, the way it was when I came on was laughable. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually in the early 80s, if you were involved in a shooting, you would meet with a counselor, talk about the event, and if they thought that you were okay, you normally would receive three shifts off and you'd go back to work. Right. I mean, when I came on, guys literally could be in shootings and be working mm -hmm. um, like the next day. Sure. Um, so there wasn't much, uh, there wasn't a peer support group. Right. Uh, one of the most traumatic things I ever saw in my career and I was involved in, you know, a lot of uh, police officer-involved shootings on the, the special assignments unit. But as a young officer working on Southside, I went to a call of um, a child injured, and it was off of Buckeye Road and 31st Avenue. I, re I remember this vividly. I'd been on the job a couple years. I got there, and a family dog, a big chow, attacked a toddler and killed this kid. Oh, the sight of seeing this situation and talking with the family and just what I went through that day, uh, and the child was obviously dead, uh, I, I can't describe to you mm -hmm. the, what, what this looked like. Um, at the time, there was no one to really talk to. I remember going back to the locker room that night, and there were, I was working days, uh, several of the officers that were came to the call after me, uh, we were all kind of making jokes about everything, and sure. and, and that was very typical. You would kind of uh, make it out that this was not a big deal. Sure. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of an admission that, hey, this thing actually affected me. Yep. Did you see what she looked like type of thing? Those sure. calls were just kept in your mind, and you didn't discuss them. Oh, and you went to choir practice afterwards. We we did have that in the in the early part of my career, but you know if you look at it, and we've had Phoenix PD, there have been some very well publicized officers that have committed suicide based yes. upon shootings that they were involved in, and then yeah. dealt with the aftermath of trying to balance it. Some people, 
it's something that is easily to get through. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen one of our SWAT operators, we're doing a high-risk search warrant. The officer ended up shooting and killing a guy that was armed with a weapon, and it resulted in this officer leaving the team. Hmm. Uh, he was a man of faith. Sure. He couldn't balance this out. It, you know, it's just he thought he'd be able to handle it, yep. and that's not unusual. Not I had another all. friend. I worked a walking beat assignment in the housing projects early on in my career. Ended up going down. I had an informant. And I went down, and, and at the time it was called SIB, the Special Investigations Bureau. I used this informant to draw uh, several search warrants for heroin. Mm -hmm. And while I was gone the first day of my temporary transfer, my partner was involved in a shooting oh, wow. and killed a guy off of Buckeye Road. And honestly, it to this day, mm -hmm. there's a, a lingering effect. It's not a ding on him because I've seen dozens of Absolutely. officers. Everybody handles it in a different way. Some guys, it, it, they somehow can figure it out and make it work. Well, and I think a lot of times too, because that's what we do at Under the Shield is we try to work with these officers and we try to do stuff on the proactive front end side to make sure they're healthy, physiologically sleep, all that stuff going into it. But I think a lot of times what's missed is that it isn't necessarily the shooting itself but maybe something else that they feel like they could have prevented because that's what your job is to be a problem solver oh we are our worst critics yes you are yeah i mean in the nine years that i was on a special assignments unit as the team leader and sometimes i was acting for another supervisor who was off and you'd get in a fatality shooting uh Myself, that night, was always a train wreck. Mm -hmm. I mean, the longest I've ever had it last is maybe two weeks of thinking about the what-ifs. Sure. You know, that uh, why didn't I think of this? Or why did I do that? Or why didn't I? And, and you know, we are uh, a lot of people that really take pride in it. Uh, we are too tough on ourselves. Yes. I mean, you put a human being, and, and actually in something that is not well publicized, Law enforcement agencies across the problem, across the nation, have a problem in that in our hiring system, we have a flaw. We accept human beings. Yes. If we could program robots <laughs> yes. and make them cops yes. and say, these are your constitutional rights. This is uh, about race equality. Sure. This is about all this gender stuff that we're seeing. Sure. You know what? That would be great, but we don't do that. That's our right. pool is human beings. That's right. So, um, you know... It, it, we all sometimes are too overly critical and some guys will second guess themselves uh, to a point where it ends their career. Yes, yeah, for sure. And it takes people like yourself who's been in all of these high risk positions and stuff to start talking about, yeah, I had a hard time after that, but we didn't sit around and talk about it. I said, how many trainings do you go to that people are more than happy to get and talk about the tactical side, but they won't talk about the fallout after that. And this is where Mark Valenzuela at Phoenix, who mm -hmm. recently retired, has done an amazing job in teaching with me because he talks about the fallout. He talks about the struggles he had, the things he was doing. And supervisors even said, we noticed, but we thought it would just go away. And he was like, why didn't somebody ask me? Well, the, uh, the funny thing about that is all of us can drag all this stuff and stick it in a closet and close the door, yep. is the stuff still there? Absolutely. If you don't expose it to the light, 
uh, it's not going to get resolved. And depending on what the problem is, some of these, I mean, I could go back in my career of just some tragic, uh, horrible things that happened that because of the fact that we would not discuss this Mm -hmm. and nobody wanted to reveal, hey, this actually is bothering me. Right. Because you wanted to be the tough guy. Yeah, be seen as weak. You thought it might right. be seen as weak. And guys would go, show up at scenes. I remember a, a traffic fatality. Once again, I've been on two or three years. It was at 18th Avenue and Broadway down in South Phoenix. And a guy staggered out from a bar. He was intoxicated. And he got hit by three vehicles. Oh. I got there. I was riding with a partner that night. And we got there and, and looked at the victim. And this guy was obviously dead. But looking at him and, and what this did, three vehicles running over him sure. uh, late at night, early in the morning. And because we didn't have really the support thing that now you see, right. we you know got waited for our hit and run team to come out and take the investigation because they, they can do all the, the more amazing things. Uh, I was not a traffic guy. But uh, we would, you know, talk about everything other than, hey, this bothers me. Or did you see this guy? We would make light jokes, talk about sports or whatever it is. Well, the problem is you're still dragging this around. Absolutely. Uh, One of the programs that I've been going to, and I'm just amazed on how good it is, is Valor. Mm -hmm. BJA has gotten into this, and I've gone to many of their conferences when they come here. And honestly, the the things that they talk about, I I say amen. It's time. Yes. Uh, And sadly, I've seen guys ruin their lives or maybe even commit suicide because they thought what they were experiencing was something unique or they had some weakness in their head. Absolutely. Or I've got this problem. Why can't I be like this guy? He's fine. Yeah. Uh, Not everybody reacts that way. And now more and more you're hearing people and actually I love hearing the stories of you know what this is my struggle mm-hmm. this is what I'm seeing and you know what uh, we should have been doing that the whole time you call it a closet we call it the psychological garbage can that's all I was thinking when he said because that, that yeah. stuff it it molds it mildews you know maggots grow in it bad stuff and eventually it's gonna come out somehow or another and it's usually not good and you know, honestly and truthfully, I'm going to put you on the spot here because I would love to have you teach with me sometime. And I may have to drag you to the border the 26th of July, <laughs> Chuck. Well, it's a Monday. You might have to mark that one on your calendar. <laughs> Let me look I, at my calendar. You know, it's you could, really busy. It's filling up. Oh, I think you could probably, I think, I think you could probably cut me a day out because the border, as all of us that live out here know, if there's a population that needs help right now, it's those guys at Border Patrol, Yuma County, Yuma PD, that whole area. And that's that's who this training is actually for. Yeah, uh, you know, a, a lot of people I, that I feel sorry for is I look at some of the younger officers mm-hmm. and the scrutiny. You know, when I worked on the Special Assignments Unit, just as an example, we did not wear uh, body video cameras right. because they weren't, they weren't around. I was there from 1990. And I left and went to bombs in 1999. Did you have dash cams then, even? Uh, very few. Okay. Very few. In fact, this whole video thing is is so something new. that's just been evolving in the last 10 years or so. Yeah. But uh, now, when SWAT teams go out, all of this stuff okay. is uh, something that can be reviewed. And actually, um, 
can be I, helpful. I don't have a problem with it. it. It can be helpful. Right. I think more importantly, uh, it should set your mind going in the door, do the right thing. Right. Because uh, all of this stuff is discoverable, obviously. Right. The good thing is it creates transparency and it keeps us honest. The, the downside is, I don't know if it's a downside, but I just think the, the public had unrealistic expectations of what they were going to see. And when they saw imperfect men and women doing a difficult job, right. they they have problems with the fact that they're imperfect. And that's just that's just tough on the officers because it's not I mean, none of us did a perfect job every day of our career. It So there's going to be things to criticize. And unfortunately, uneducated eyes criticizing us. It's hard for well, it us. It doesn't sometimes. capture everything that the officer's perception no, is it based on either. That's right. the other thing. And I there think are the times, depending, understand. looking at different angles. Sure. I was just looking at a shooting that I saw on Police One and uh, just looking at the different vantage points just from the body cameras worn by the officers versus people now using their cell phone and recording yes. it. It is fascinating because in several of them, you could not see the suspect actually pulled a weapon and suddenly pointed at the officers. It looked like the officers shot for no reason. Sure. So don't jump to a conclusion. (laughs) Realize that if there's five videos, there actually are a hundred different angles or or more of different things. And it doesn't tell the whole story. Sure. Um, I think more importantly, if you do the right thing, the camera is not going to make you look like a fool. Right. Uh, It's where, and I've done it myself sometimes. Yeah. Once again, I'm a human being. I will say things or do things that you're like, why? That is not me. That is not the person I am. And stress and things that you go through sometimes can cause strange reactions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, again, that's the proactive, preventative side of of having people healthy or sleeping better. Because, again, and you know this, for 100 years we've taught in a police academies keep personal and professional separate. That's the biggest joke of, of that anybody says, in my opinion, at academies, because you cannot keep the two separate. What happens at home, you bring to work. What happens at work, you bring home, even if it's just in your attitudes. It's not necessarily in what you're saying. And again, it goes back to that human factor. Every cop out there is a human being who has hurts and likes and dislikes just like everybody else does and is expected to do a job that most people wouldn't last a week out here doing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think individually, my character flaw is that I'm a type A pers- personality. Sure. I like being in leadership. I love, I loved re- running different things on SAU or on the bomb squad. The problem is I put a very strange priority on what I was doing to where it was the most important, and what the way I was, was typical right. for people that I looked at that sure. were my mentors that acted the same way, and I thought this is the this is the code that I'm I need. This is be. the model that I need to follow. Right. Sure. And I wish uh, somebody would have looked at me and said, "Hey, we we appreciate how much you give. What are you giving your wife, or what are you giving? You know, I'm married again. What are you giving your current wife?" Um, and honestly, sometimes it gets way out of balance it to does. where it became the most important thing above anything. Sure. And to me, it's almost shameful to admit that. But what I am telling you, yeah. very common, especially yeah. in these, for sure. Uh, you know, very prioritized, interesting assignments. I worked a lot of my career with the Phoenix Fire Department and Tempe and other agencies. There are special ops people that do mm-hmm. hazardous materials. I was a hazardous 
materials technician as well. You just had a real. Well, I, I loved it because they thought drive like for me. Adrenaline too. I, I loved it. They thought like me. They loved using logic trees and figuring out what can I do to mitigate the risk to me, my team, mm-hmm. and putting your head and putting together a good plan. I love that. I mean, I, that was something that I actually looked forward to. Sure. Uh, well, I remember responding one day out to the airport. And there was a report that a cargo plane was uh, routed back to Phoenix, was going to land, and they thought that there was a bomb on board. It's a very complicated story. But the plane lands, and I mean, I've got city manager calling. I've got the director of the airport. I've got uh, a lot of politicians that are showing up because we end up shutting down uh, the north half of Sky Harbor Airport where we're working on this. Wow. Then we had to figure out a way of moving this cargo plane to an area and then unloading it and trying to find a thing inside of a large cargo plane. Wow. I'd never done that in my career. So this is so a we have we have to quickly get the equipment to take these vessels out that hold the cargo. How are we going to do that? You can't put civilians in there and expect them hey, unload this plane. Right. Uh-uh. So now we're training, guys. So we used a combination of some special assignments, personnel that were there, our bomb people, and literally getting on with some instructions. This is how you put in gear. This is how you move this thing. And we actually unloaded this. Now we've got to go in. There were 13 large containers. We had to go in those and try to find our thing. Did you have a bomb dog at that time? We had bomb dogs, okay. yeah. So it was a very complicated map. I mean, I'd never even thought of this scenario playing out. I loved it. I bet you did. You know, while people were, uh, there were literally people like just going nuts. Uh, different people, this can't be, how long is this going to take? I'm like, <laughs> relax, I've got this. The, the cool thing about working in bomb EOD work is very rarely will people come you come there and tell you what to do. Yeah. Everybody is a SWAT genius. Absolutely. Everybody thinks they could run this situation. Oh, yeah. I've seen this. I watched this on, why would you do that? Why would you make entry? Why didn't you? And it's like on bombs, normally if I told them, this is what we got to have. I got to have 1,500 yards back from here. They're like, okay, We're you're safe. We're house. Well, that, that was actually fun. But I enjoyed those challenges. And you know what? At the end of the day, we got through it. There was no large bomb inside this thing, but it was oh, actually it a fun, no. It was a fun call to run. And we learned a ton of things. We learned the importance of, you know what? We need to add a little training. And this is the scenario. We never even thought of this. How many were even in the bomb unit at that we time? Had, when I got there, we had seven full-time uh, technicians. And when I left, we had gone to nine. We were very busy. And I was a bomb technician kind of in the back part of the bus, but I was a bomb technician as well. All training is done at uh, Redstone Arsenal down yes. in Alabama. The Army Roll runs it with... Roll uh, can't resist. Yeah, <laughs> runs it with the FBI. So it's a massive program. The it FBI kind of governs it over the entire United States. If it's a, an actual authorized bomb squad, we're all trained at the same location. So there's a commonality of how you go about your work mm-hmm. that I enjoy. On the SWAT side of the house, you've kind of got an East Coast mentality, a West Coast, and it's different. You know, everybody sure. kind of looks at it different. And once again, everybody is an expert, and everybody can criticize the heck out of you. Absolutely. A lot of um, Monday Morgan quarterbacking going on. Well, I think with that, where we get our purpose imbalanced, right, where we start to put our family and God and all these other things, second, third, fourth, fifth, because I did the same thing. And I didn't realize it until afterwards when I was like, 
woe is me because my purpose is gone and a friend of mine that actually I met through Susan Brock Bevel hi Brock thanks um, he helped me kind of realize like dude you're you are not a cop it's something you do mm -hmm. like it's not all of you and that's okay like you have a family you have a but with specialties like for sure I was on the SWAT team it was a part-time mm -hmm. but you it gives you such a clearer because it's like that's what I wanted to do so not only was it a goal that I had achieved but now there's a very clear purpose and drive so it's like it's so easy to make that your life it's like I need to be a good operator this is what I do. I'm the less lethal guy. I need to be. I need to know right. this thing. I need to be good here. Well, there's something, and honestly, there's something about the teamwork. Yeah. Uh, at one point, when I was working on the special assignments unit, we had had a lot of off. And Phoenix, I was on the honor guard for about 27 years of my 32-year oh. career. I was there really when it began, and so I got to do be involved in line of duty deaths. And I think in my 32-year career, I'd have to look exactly, but I think either 30 or 31 officers were killed during my career. Wow. Well, if you look, that's like the highest in the state. It's yeah. not even close. Yeah. Right. Um, there's something about training with people on these specialized units that um, you develop a closeness that sure. doesn't exist. We looked at patrol officers that were getting killed. We'd look and kind of analyze what happened and the mistakes and what could have been done differently. And for about a year and a half, we trained all of the patrol officers in, in Phoenix. We brought them down to a location at Central and Broadway. Mm -hmm. And we had a, a business, an old building that closed down. And we remodified it and did entry training. Mm -hmm. Well, it was probably one of the best programs I ever was involved in in my career. Because we did the entire police department, all okay. officers. Well, you would see them come in, and they were kind of intimidated. You had SWAT guys training you. You know, they they got big egos. Oh, yeah. And what are they going to try to nitpick me about? Yes. And we'd run them through the training. And honestly, there was a difference. When they left, they had more respect of me, and they kind of knew what my training abilities were. And they liked the fact that I was willing to share what I knew with Absolutely. them to maybe help them get through their shift. Well, you know what? Shame on us. We should have been doing that all along. Yeah. Every agency should still be doing it because not to no. not to the degree that we saw. You know, and you see the number I, I saw the evening news last night on NBC and just in the past sixty or, or uh, six days, I forget how many shootings of four people or more there have been in the country, but yes. it was kind of astounding. Sure. So obviously the threat is still there. There's still a lot of people that are involved in violence with handguns and shooting up many people. Uh, we need to do more training. Obviously it can happen. Why do you think they got away from it? Uh, it takes money. It yeah, takes money true. and time. You take those units out of service, yep. who's answering the call, calls true. right now? Uh, across the valley, you see all these agencies. Chandler is trying to hire with an incentive. Tempe is doing it. Phoenix is looking. And most of these agencies, when these officers are hitting their retirement point, they're leaving. Mm -hmm. They're not being like me, working 32 or longer. Right. I saw one of our officers that has worked on the special assignments unit. He's leaving. I think he has 36 years. Well, like you said, they, they walk out the door. Uh, where do you get some dude with 36 years of experience? It, it doesn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, now you've got staffing levels aren't what they should be. We're understaffed. Uh, it, sadly, uh, time, money, things like that come yeah, into the equation. It's, it's, like a, it's impossible to replace. I mean, I've seen people like that leave our department that had 
like incredible point of view and problem solving abilities and leadership abilities. And you can't just replace that with another guy that you just got out of the academy. It's going to take him another 10 years to become like that officer if he ever does. So it's those people are so valuable. So it's it's more than just losing bodies, because I hear that a lot with like my department or other departments where we're just losing people. Well, you're you're losing more than just one person. You're, You're losing all the stuff that came with that person. And a lot of times, I mean, maybe not always. I'm sure there are some officers that you may not find valuable. I don't know any of those, but these these guys have something special about them that in Iggy when he came in that we talked mm-hmm. about him a little bit when he changed his perspective one of the things that he said to me that stuck with me as far as officers and another officer taught me the same thing was he could if, if he could have control over the police department right he could find a place for everyone that they would excel and they would love it'd be different for everybody some people would be like uh, PIOs and other people would be SWAT guys and some guys would be traffic guys but you could put people somewhere where they would excel and do great just because they're different so when we lose somebody we lose whatever that skill set is whatever that passion is and the whole department suffers for it well what yeah. they also don't realize and I, I don't know if a study's been done sooner but or more recent but I know probably 15 years ago the FBI did a study that showed that a veteran officer and I think in that study they were looking at somebody with it was either five or ten years was worth a quarter of a million dollars to the department and I said but you build in liability to that of a guy who's learned over five to ten years what he should and shouldn't do you take somebody new out of an academy and stick them in there your liability is highest with this new person that's where your exposure is that's where the lawsuits are coming from this kind of stuff because this is a job we can only train you so far in the academy. We can't give you every right. scenario, just like you're talking about with this threat of a bomb in a plane. Y'all hadn't thought about that. Right. There's no way to train for everything. Oh, yeah. And you have, and departments are so big on liability. And I'm like, why are you letting people walk out because of your bad decisions at the top in some of these agencies? Well, they don't feel them. that they've got support from their agency itself. Right. Um, and honestly, the job of a police chief, and I've never been a chief in my life, but I look at it, and uh, it's changed so much during my career. Absolutely. At one time, they kind of stood up on their own. Mm-hmm. And now you see it becoming way more political, much more involvement from people on the city council, city manager. Sure. And not that that's a bad thing, but it's changed. And sometimes uh, you have to actually kind of bow your back Mm-hmm. And you have to do the right thing. And sometimes you have to stand up for your people. Yes. This looks bad, but let me tell you the rest of the story. This is what happened. Sure. And some uh, chiefs feel uncomfortable doing that. They yes. wonder if they're, because they are all generally at-will employees. Right. If, if people don't feel like they're competent, they're not basically serving the council properly, well, you can replace them. Sure. Uh, when I started my career, we had an old chief here on Phoenix named Wetzel that had been there forever. Uh, they kind of, he knew he was pretty sure in his job. You know, mm-hmm. he he wasn't going anywhere. Well, that gives you a little bit more uh, backbone where sure. you can say, you know what, I'm telling you no, sure. and this is why. Uh, right now, you've got uh, on this Phoenix Council, uh, even council people uh, trying to defund the police department. Yes. Very little support. Well, I ask you, you're, you're wanting to keep these officers around. Right. Uh, put yourself in their shoes. Uh, everybody is critical. Everybody thinks they can do the job better. You don't have support from your government. 
I don't know. To me, I'm glad that I'm at the, the final phase of my career. Yeah. I look at younger guys and I'm like, uh, good luck with it. The heart. amazing thing is uh, generally Americans, we are resilient. Yes. And, and we have, uh, yeah, people love to bash the young cops and, you know, the fa- I'm a non-facial, I have a mustache, but uh, guys growing beards. And I look at it, I'm like, we, you know, we never do. You couldn't even extend your sideburns below the bottom of your <laughs> yep. ear and you'd have it inspected every morning at the academy. <laughs> sure. Um, a lot of what they do, though, is so far advanced from what my skill set is that I'm like, wow. Now, I'm kind of a computer guy, but I work with a lot of younger people and I just see what they're able to do. Oh, yeah. Um, This whole, you know, we've been with the pandemic, we had to kind of make the transition just for training and trying to give people something that they could take into their shift and maybe operate safer. Sure. Well, how do you do that when we're all trying to stay away from each other and we can't be in the same room together and we're social distancing? Well, this whole evolution of training stuff on the internet, the Zoom and the WebEx, uh, this was all new to me. Sure. Well, for younger people, man, they can pick this up and they run with it way better than yes. what I can. Yes. I want to hear, you were talk, I know you and I were talking at the gym even yesterday, because um, I didn't realize we'd had a World Series here. And you said how many Super Bowls? We've That I was involved in yeah. three. They, they initially, when I began my career, they actually held uh, Super Bowl in Tempe out at Sun Devil Stadium. Really? Yeah. I'm kidding. And in fact, I'd have to go back. There may have even been two there. But then when the new Cardinal Stadium got built out in Glendale, that was the newer, nicer venue. So I worked two over there. Were there a lot of threats back then during these big events? Like <laughs> Every big event, there are uh, possible threats. Okay. You know, during the I worked the World Series in 2001, what made that interesting is obviously you have no planning, at least a Super Bowl, you can look at a calendar and go, wow, in five years it's going to be in Glendale. Right. A World Series doesn't work that way. True. You learn a week out. True. Hey, first game is Saturday night. Are you I ready? thought about so that. So we had no plan. Wow. Uh, first thing I did was I called Lieutenant Gerald Sheehan with New York PD and had a, fa- I didn't know him had a fabulous discussion with him, and he basically shared his lengthy career, a lot of it uh, being involved as the bomb commander in New York with me, and helped me formulate my operational plan that I wrote. Um, But, you know, it's just, uh, it's very tough. All these big events, even NBA All-Star Game events, things like that, you might not think, how big is that? It's a big deal. You know, you have people coming into town, you don't want to look stupid. Sure. You want to plan for the unexpected. At the 2001 World Series, this came right on the heels of 9-11. Sure. So yeah. obviously the nation was concerned about another terrorist attack. Everyone that we talked to in the government, the big thinking people, they were saying, wow, a World Series is something that might be targeted yeah. by one of these extremist groups, and uh, we better be prepared. So you need to basically cordon off the stadium, make sure it's safe, a vehicle bomb doesn't get in there and kill people. But uh, we, we were even working with the military. We worked with uh, different centers for disease control. We had uh, air monitoring, because we weren't sure if it was there was gonna be some sort of a release of uh, something that could be 
uh, a killer for people. So yeah. it was a very, you know, as quickly as we could, and we didn't have a whole lot of time. The we put all this series. together, and yeah, it was just the, the neatest cooperative between us, New York PD, and all their people sharing uh, information and intelligence. And it, once again, it was a high, one of the highlights of my career. I, I enjoyed it, but, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of the game. I was busy doing <laughs> yeah. things at an area uh, about a half a mile away. People just sit there enjoying a hot dog, never knowing. Right. <laughs> was there a big, did you find a big difference in what preparation would be here in the Phoenix area versus what they had to deal with in New York? Well, it's, it's a lot bigger town, obviously. Right. The, the good thing is the Yankees at the time were in the World Series often. You know, this is the first time the Diamondbacks, they were a relatively new club. I think they'd maybe been in Major League Baseball five years. So it was mm-hmm. kind of a neat thing to have it happen. But uh, talking with them, they're like, oh, yeah, we hosted it three years ago. We had it two years before that. Well, you get better. Mm-hmm. When you do high-risk events, seldom, mm-hmm. you're never very good at it because you, <laughs> you don't have any reps. Sure. Uh, yeah. If you do a high-risk, high-frequency thing, like somebody walking on a tight line, mm-hmm. and you put them up there, and you see them, man, they go right across it. Nothing to it. Guess how much they train for that? Sure. Well, they do it a lot. Sure. Now you put cops in high risk, low frequency events, and we wonder why many times they look bad. They don't do the right thing. They didn't, you know, they didn't identify, hey, this guy's got a gun and he's point, you know. Sure. Why? Goes back to training. Yep. And we talked about here we recognize last six days many shootings throughout the country, yet the training that we're giving our officers kind of has declined. Uh, this is not good. That's not a recipe you'd say, yeah, make that. That makes sense. Dangerous things, we're training less often. Sure. That's a recipe for failure. Sure. Yeah. I don't know any government institutions that have improved with less money. No. So yeah, I don't I don't know that true. I don't know the police would be any different. But we are seeing a shift in, in I mean, I think they're you know, Los Angeles has suddenly decided defunding probably wasn't a good idea and I know New York did and but the problem is is what they don't understand is they've lost so many good people that just because they bring the money back now doesn't bring the bodies back in no. the experience all right well no. the, the downside i mean the pendulum swings right it does. they're, they're going to make decisions and we're going to suffer consequences for decisions good and bad but it, eventually it's, it's going to work its way out you know like kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall but there's we just never seem always to find the middle of the road it always seems to be one extreme or the other in law enforcement and right. you know i've been doing this again not as long as you but 30 years and again i watch it swing from one extreme to the other i'm like can't we find the middle of the road on a lot of this stuff? Yeah, well, we're emotional creatures. I think that we react that way even when we think we're not reacting that way. And we pull too hard in one direction. And we do that as a country, too. It's the same thing. So sure. it, it, I feel like it's just the normal cycle of things. Um, and we're just living through the, the bad end of the cycle right now. But it's, I, you know, it's, it's going to swing back. I think w- I was looking at it with a couple buddies of mine when, you know, people like police. They hate police. They, oh, it was Rich Mack. We, yeah. were, we were talking about it. Yes. And it... it he kind of divvied it up to like a 27 to 30 year cycle. Mm. So, and it's like, oh, that's a long time. Yeah, I don't know if I want my, I don't know if I want my whole career to be in the bottom of that cycle. <laughs> um, but it's like, if, if somebody has to do it, I mean, why not me? It's, I think the biggest thing we've touched on a couple of times here is understanding how to balance your life purpose properly, like your priorities. Because uh, for me, I had to lose everything and then have that conflict be like a crisis in my life. Right. You know, and it sounds like you had your own 
crisis with the divorce and everything else. Is that what helped you see that? Did you have people that helped you realize like, hey, your priorities are messed up or did you just learn that on your own? Uh, I recognize that I I had issues and <laughs> I, I met with a counselor yeah. to talk and we ended up becoming really good friends. Yeah. Uh, I, I met that. him <laughs> actually through a, a church organization, a group, a men's group yeah. and uh, learned of this guy, met, met him. Um, you know, I, I am a person of faith for me. My faith helps me a lot to kind of, kind of get through this. Life is a test sure. for all of us. Sure. And, uh, you know, once again, just to tell you how jacked up I was with being <laughs> on this adrenaline rush of what I did, uh, how I could somehow put this above things that really should have been the priority. Um, God and my family. It actually is kind of shameful, and to this day, I still relapse, and at times can get the priorities out of whack. Uh, the most important thing is uh, you got to have conversation. You got to have honest conversation with someone. Yep. Yes. Uh, I'll give a plug. I go to a uh, now it's become a non-denominational men's group on Saturday mornings. It's called Practice, yes. and uh, it's at the Forum down in Chandler. We meet at seven in the morning. And really, the the interesting thing, we it's a Bible-based thing, obviously, because it's a men's study. So it's but not more, just law enforcement, it's no, just No, it's, it's a bunch oh, of sinners oh, okay. that, that need Jesus. <laughs> but we sit down and we get a message, and then we break up into little groups and just kind of talk, you know, how you doing, Susan? Sure. That sort of thing. Well, most men don't want to reveal <laughs> that I got this going on behind the curtain here. Right. I'll just keep that curtain pulled. Absolutely. And uh, I don't care whether it's faith-based or, or just... A couple guys getting down like we used to in choir practice. Sure. But in order for you to make things right in your head, you have to talk about it. Empty the garbage. And if there's something that really is uh, complicated, sure. Uh, it, it may need a professional. Yes. I'll, I'll give you an example. I lost my dad when I was 11. Wow. My dad was a he was a hero to me. He was 40 when he passed away. He died of a blood clot in the brain. Mm. Uh, he was uh, in education, made no money. At one time, he was superintendent of schools in a little school district outside of Colorado Springs, Colorado, called Falcon, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And he did that. Uh, then he decided to take a new job, uh, and he ended up was driving to his new job first day, pulls over at the mousetrap in Denver, Colorado, the intersection of I-25 and I-70. So it'd be like I-10 and I-17 in Phoenix, mm -hmm. pulls his uh, Mustang over to the side of the road, gets out, opens up the door, walks around to the passenger's door, opens it, and falls to the ground as a state patrolman was pulling up wow. and saw this. Dead right there. Wow. 40. Jeez. Wow. Um, my mom was, she had three children. I, I was the middle child. And she had no education, skills, or ability other than being a mother, and that's a big job. Sure. But now she's looking at herself, what do I what do? Now? Yeah. House that's not paid for. My dad wasn't financially secure. We didn't have tons of insurance and all that. We actually borrowed money from a, an aunt to bury my father. Luckily, he was an Army veteran, so we got some help. But uh, my mom, through all this, developed issues because she you know in that generation god forbid you wouldn't talk about anything right she dealt with uh becoming an alcoholic came from an alcoholic family 
Um, and, and this was what, what I was kind of raised in mm-hmm. at that point. Uh, I kind of lost my childhood and became a man at a, at a very early age, started working at an early age, and I've never quit working because mm-hmm. I got a lot of, because my family life was so terrible that my jobs actually became my go-to. Sure. It, it gave me purpose and it gave me an escape. Sure. Well, um, just sitting here in front of a radio mic and admitting this is something I never would have considered back in the day <laughs> right. because, man, I, look at me. You right. know, I, I don't have these things. Well, you know what? That was an issue for me. Sure. Um, I think it is for most people, especially from an older generation, right? Yeah, we, we, we were told basically keep, keep your mouth shut Absolutely. and keep up. You know, yeah. yes. don't don't whine, don't moan. Well, I, I get that, but honestly, you got to have a conversation with someone. Yeah, right. and, and and really, during my career, I'd say that is a huge plus. That it has become much more evident. You know what? You have to talk about this. It doesn't just go away. Yeah, and and that's what I mean by having experienced, seasoned people get up and talk to the new ones, the younger ones, the ones doing the job now. Because in traveling around the country, Canada and Europe teaching, there are generational differences, but I still see the same issues and the same stuff of suck it up and go on because of the fact that really there are very few people standing up and saying, yeah, I had this problem and I should have talked about it sooner. And yes, I put this job before my God, before myself and before my family. And, you know, they can justify it very easily in their brains because they go, you know what? In my line of work, people can die. I can I can save people's lives. And then the more, again, the specialized units, you know, it isn't like you can just call old Tom to come off the street and help you take this bomb apart or kick in a door and save somebody's life. So it becomes, that's where the identity comes in, and that's then they can justify it. Not everybody does this. Right. And that's where it's important for people like yourself to stand up in front and go, I should have been talking about this a long time ago. Right. I'll, I'll share another story that is, is that actually just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in 81, 82, I was working Southside at the time. Uh, South Mountain Precinct is what it's called. It's off of 4th Avenue and Southern. Um, We ended up creating a t-shirt that said, 1982, I survived District 4. We had four officers. We had four officers that committed suicide from that precinct. Yes. Um, I, I could tell you this whole thing, and there were so many indications, and there was so little talk that we as a group of officers, what did we do for it? We made a t-shirt up and joked about being able to survive this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a guy, I don't want to throw down names, but there was a guy I worked with. I respected the heck out of this guy. He was tremendous. He was a great officer. Everyone loved him. He ended up killing, this is one of the four, he killed his 11-year-old son. It began as a family disturbance with his estranged wife. There was an accidental discharge. It was reported intentional or actual discharge of a shotgun. He ends up leaving the scene, goes down to South Side, lives down there, kills his 11-year-old boy, kills himself. I respected this man. He was a great officer. You know what? Uh, afterwards, when we talk about it, there were indications mm-hmm. of things that weren't right. Yep. How was that right that we didn't uh, do something? 
Uh, another sergeant worked as a sergeant on a street crime squad down there. He uh, ended up killing his wife and committed suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes on. We had an officer, uh, very publicized, very embarrassing thing for the city. An officer ended up killing his roommate, who was a Phoenix officer, shot him in the back with an AR-15 several times. The man that was the best man in my wedding, my first wedding, luckily he was a roommate, he wasn't home. He came home, discovered this officer shot to death. The This officer that did this crime ends up uh, stealing a Corvette, robbed some people at a Circle K, did a home um, invasion type of thing. Uh, these are all cops. Yes. What, what I'm saying is we're not infallible. And when you have people that obviously they've got something going on, mm -hmm. um, to not address it and to not have a conversation, this is what you get. Yes. Is in in that 81, 82 time frame in one precinct in, sure. in Phoenix, we had a four officers commit suicide. I'm telling you, that's not right. And the thing right. about it is, um, really until probably the last five to 10 years, departments would say that was personal it had nothing to do with us and it was i was teaching at a conference down in west palm gosh probably 15 years ago now and i remember a chief getting up and making the mistake and about about probably 350 of his peers and he got up and and made the mistake of saying that the problems that we were seeing in law enforcement had to do with the kind of people that they were recruiting and I asked the question, I said, so you're telling me you're recruiting people who are more prone to suicide, more prone to divorce, more prone to addiction and domestic violence. And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, let me tell you something. I said, your recruiting sucks then. Right. And he sat back down and I said, you cannot blow this off on the person. This is a nationwide issue. Right. You have got a, to look at it. It's a human issue. It's it a, is a human issue. Yeah, it's like this. And this is where the garbage can theory came yeah. from initially in '92, because again, you're taking good people who have great intentions, truthfully, because the majority of people I've been in your academy class and one today, if you said, "Why are you doing this job?" They're going to tell you they want to help people. That's the bottom line to it. And you take that and you put the internal conflict with the most have attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity, which means you're higher IQ. And you have an adrenaline junkie. You, because really, think about it. What's the worst thing that could happen to law enforcement? Peace and prosperity breaks out among the land. <laughs> and there ain't nothing happening. Right. That would be the biggest nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, that's where the ADD and the adrenaline junkie come in conflict with that caregiver. But we're, we're not training this. Well, the, the amazing thing about all this and defund the police, it, it is interesting. Because the problem is, that as long as this planet earth has human beings mm -hmm. on it you're going to need cops absolutely because there are people out there that actually uh, are, are opportunists yes they want to prey on people yes uh they sometimes are just con men and they do different things well um yeah you can take the guns away from the cops and you can say you know what we're getting rid of the police department we'll get social workers we'll get some food programs you're still going to have a need for law enforcement <laughs> yes and uh and you know what you mentioned on, it, it and, and they'll prey on these populations that where the the defunding of police will pull police completely out of those areas where the poor the elderly and those well they'll be the biggest victims i, I, I try to be uh, a half glass full guy mm -hmm. 
I don't think this is all bad. Because I think Which what you're part? talking about is, you know, this 25 or 30 year cycle that you see. I think what you're going to see is people when they actually look at it legitimately and you're not biased. Right. You don't hate cops when you're looking at it. Right. And you go, wow, you're going to recognize the difficulty of the job mm-hmm. and how really we don't receive the the depth of training that we really need to become really good at this. I talked about high risk, low frequency. Sure. People that really excel at doing dangerous, dangerous stuff, they practice or they're on it every day. Absolutely. So you get very good at even doing dangerous things. Sure. Uh, so I think what's going to happen is people, when all this settles, they're going to say, wow. And you're going to see... Like even just in the last couple of years, Bola Wrap is a product that's come out. I don't know if you've seen it, mm-hmm. but basically it was developed. I think it's in Tempe. It's a weapon that you basically, it shoots a uh, cable that has like weighted bells, bells yes. balls on it. And it shoots it through the air and you can kind of like lasso somebody. Well, not that this is going to replace your gun. You right. won't need bullets anymore because you got this <laughs> Bola Wrap. Right. But you know what? It's one more thing to it's put in your tool. kit. Yes. I was a car mechanic. Uh, when I was going to college and I started, I became uh, automotive service excellence uh, uh, certified in fields. And I had stuff in my toolbox, which was a gigantic, that I would maybe use once a year. Sure. But when you need that tool, isn't the time to go, wow, I don't have one of those. You want the tool. You may only use it once a year. Well, that's kind of what we need to start collecting things like the bullet wrap. Stick it in the toolbox. Are you going to use it on every call? No. Right. But you have this dude, and you don't want to shoot him. He's, he's mentally, he's got mental issues. He's armed with a knife. He's running into a crowded area. You're going to get criticized if you kill him. Sure. Yeah. You know what? Let's try this and see if it works. Uh, people need to just realize, though, there is not some silver bullet that we can do this. No one's going to die. The cops aren't going to hurt somebody. Uh, I've seen uh, less lethal munitions used. Sure. That create deaths. Sure. It can happen. So I don't care. You can't. The problem is you're doing something that's dangerous. And anytime, you'll never have somebody sign off and say, this cannot cause death that use this way. Right. So I have um, to ask your opinion on this because I heard the other day. I got to find out who it is. Supposedly, there's a sheriff out of Georgia. I can't believe he's born and raised in the South if he's doing this. But who's actually out teaching to shoot to wound. Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah. I, I have heard of it. And and my thing is, is do people not understand? You can shoot to wound and hit a femoral artery and they can bleed to death. It, you know, to me, it's totally, un, it's just not practical. Um, and I think people are jumping on bandwagons to try to make a name for themselves in this stuff. Well, the, the funny thing is people look at uh, police and if they actually knew how we shoot our guns, how often we shoot our guns, what do our qualification scores look like? Sure. You would just assume, oh, cops are great shots. Right. Well, that would not be accurate. And now you're asking an officer to shoot at somebody in That's legs moving. that are literally one-third the size of their upper torso That's, or more, right? And, it's and so now you're making the target smaller. And it's moving. And you're, well, I've already told you, we are not great shots. Now, sure. yeah, you get into a specialized detail like any agency in the Valley that has a full-time SWAT team, yep. they train all the time. They yes. train on all their different weapons uh, and, and they get quite good at it. I did it. Sure. Uh, but now the officer, you're lucky if you shoot a couple of annual qualifications. If you work at a good agency that can find ammunition, ammunition's That's tough to get. That's another issue, yep. Um, 
Maybe you get to go in and shoot an indoor range four times a year. That is not the norm. That's right. So if you're expecting great things to happen, and I will tell you, as an elderly guy myself, <laughs> and looking at my hand when I was qualifying and noticed that I had a little tremor there, and my eyes, I used to be able, when I was young, I used to look at my front sight, and when I was shooting, you're not you know, supposed to be, you can't like watch your round traveling down range, but I could actually look, you know, go back and forth from where I was looking at my front sight and look at the target. And at 25 yards, I could see my bullet holes. Sure. Now I'm hoping to see the target <laughs> at 25 yards. That's as far off as you shoot. Well, there, it is diminishing. Sure. You know, I don't bench what I benched when I was 20. Sure. I don't run the mile and a half like I did when I was 22. Sure. So uh, don't kid yourself. Shoot for the legs and we, yeah. Well, like you said, I've seen people die of a hit in a femoral artery. Absolutely. So it can happen. Well, and I think you're going to see a lot more shootings of people in backdrops and stuff if we start going for this shoot to wound. And I think a lot more officers are going to get I, injured. I don't see that gaining traction. I, that sounds like a political stunt. I don't see that gaining actual traction. When well, he's start actually talking. traveling around the country teaching this. Oh, wow. And it's a it's a real course. You'll, I don't know anybody's been to it yet. You'll quickly see the repercussions um, of the liability of that decision. Well, that's my attitude. That's so what like, I thought. The solution, we're talking about this common problem where we have a perception issue. And I think one of the solutions, at least one that I like because it has to do with talking and opening doors, is, so I'll start with a story. My, uh, my lawyer came on here a little while ago. And he was talking to me when we were going to my appeal. And he, he said, you know what your problem is, Tony? And it, it's, it's how you present your issues, right? You're the guy who walks into a locker room totally naked and completely comfortable. And even though other people aren't naked, they're uncomfortable that you're so comfortable being naked. <laughs> right. And he's like, that's how you are socially. You don't care about if it makes you look bad or if the problem is your problem. It, it doesn't matter if you're a participant. You just want to highlight the problem, talk about it, and then fix it. And that makes people uncomfortable. They'd like to talk about it, but they don't enjoy the fact that you're just so open about it. And people don't like that. So they right. try to get you to be quiet. And I think if there's one thing I've learned, so I'm very conservative. Um, I'm libertarian, but I'm very conservative. But one thing I've learned from the liberal movement and their the, the way that they've introduced a lot of ideas, because um, they're creative types, they're introducing a lot of new break down the walls. Let's, let's mm -hmm. all be open-minded to these things. If there's one thing I've learned from the way that they've done that, is they've opened people's minds to all kinds of things that 15 years ago would have been absolutely ridiculous to even say on TV. The way that they've done that is they've just continued to talk about it and continued to mention it, right? Like how, um, not that I have a problem with any of this, but maybe a different episode, but how, how society feels about uh, homosexuality in general, right? That is a much more open conversation now because we have normalized it. Sure. So when it comes to talking about feelings, talking about issues, talking about problems in training, problems with leadership, problems with police departments, the more I think people like me don't shut up and the more we talk about the issues and the more that we're honest and open and humble about it, we will over time, it, it always takes time, but over sure. time we will normalize these conversations, I think, to a much greater degree where it will seem necessary. Right. So I think that's that's probably one way we can start to solve that problem. Other people, like you have skill sets that can actually, like I'm pointing at Susan for those of you listening, have a skill set that you can actually help people solve these problems with themselves, mm -hmm. right? I don't have that skill set. I have a mouth and an infinite number of words. Well, sometimes I'll just beat <laughs> them with this red man stick that's next to me. Yeah. So, you know, if they don't listen to me, I just hit them. But, but I think we have to draw mental health 
into these conversations yeah. and they have to begin to open up that book knowledge is not what's right. needed in this industry. You better be out in patrol cars doing ride-alongs. This will shock you. I did a full SWAT school 30 years ago when I started this. Mm-hmm. I was suited up, running, gunning, climbing, crawling, Same. and hung with them. God, I yeah. wish there was footage of that. I wish there was, too, because I was a badass <laughs> back then. Um, I've done narcotics training. I've done hostage negotiation training. I put myself in all those positions to get to know the population and the population to get to know me. And there's some Montgomery guys who are going to be laughing, listening to this podcast, going, dang, we should have videoed that. Yeah. Um, but it's important for the mental health world to get into this. You know, sadly, I had a client here the other day that had it very young in the job and had a traumatic event and went to an EAP counselor here in the Valley and was told by the counselor, you have too much trauma for me. Excuse me? (laughs) You're on the list for a police department to, what do you think they're coming in to talk to you about? Yeah, I think people don't realize what we deal with sometimes. And it doesn't make the counselor a bad person, but don't jump into that if you're not equipped because you're going to have to possibly deal with shooting situations, all all kind of bad stuff. There was an officer not to just keep beating on the, the issues with Phoenix PD because I loved working for the city of Phoenix. Well, it's such That's, a large department. You can probably find a lot of examples. They had an officer named Craig Tiger. Oh, yeah. And maybe you're familiar with oh, this. Yes. He was involved in a use of force incident, ended yep. up shooting and killing a person on a call. Yep. He was one of these that had trouble balancing this out in yes. his mind. Um, it led to a series of decisions that were poor. Yes. Marital problems, arguments, uh, DUI Yes. Uh, and and this guy ended up ultimately, uh, he got fired by a, a chief who should never have been chief. That uh, it, it was Wasn't just a leader. Just terrible that yes. uh, he felt. And actually, before he committed suicide, he wrote a note to the uh, former police chair. He was the, still the chief at the time, just talking that he didn't feel like he was getting backed up and uh, no support. Right. Um, you know what? That's. That's sad. It is sad. Uh, this was something, and actually, it even goes back to uh, a denied claim on a workman, workman's comp yep. situation. Uh, people need to be better educated of what this entails. What does a use of force incident actually mean? What sure. what happens? Sure. Because if they're just giving you the thumbs up or thumbs down for your claim for workman's comp, but they don't know the nuts and bolts of this, absolutely, it's not going to work. Absolutely. It's not fair to anyone. Uh, and he ends up losing his life. Uh, yes. And he certainly is not the own, only one here in the Valley. We yep. have many, many other incidents that we could talk about. Sure. Well, I mean, geez, just Chris's story. And that made Absolutely. me think of Chris's story. I mean, Absolutely. L- luckily, he couldn't find the dang gun. Exactly. But- <laughs> well, and, and he and I said numerous times that was a God thing. Yeah. And he, you know, that wasn't, he, he had a purpose on this earth that unfortunately ended seven weeks ago. But... He saved a lot of lives telling his story. He was never ashamed of his story, right. of being suicidal and being in that place. And that is something that we are both, Ace and myself, are very thankful to have that on recorded on a podcast that we can share it with others. Yeah. Well, he and helped I'll that. be using it in training. He helped that journey of normalizing these kind of conversations. Like yes. We, we don't have to, we can be ashamed of our actions because they help change us and form us. And that, but what did we do with them? Right. It was a low point in our life. Right. That's that's okay. That that shame helped change us. But 
It, and again, it, he made it to be the most decorated officer yeah. at Chandler Police Department. Right. On top of being the most respected. And every, I think everyone would tell you that, even though he lost his stripes when that happened. And But he, he owned it. He claimed it. He said, here's where I was. Here's why. Here's what was going on. Here's what I've done since then. Yeah. And that's the stuff that is so important that we've got to begin to get people like yourself, which I'm telling you now, you're going to get rooked into training, Chuck. Sorry. Um, you're you're going to be sharing your stories and stuff because uh, it's just too important. And they we, we got to start to change that part of this culture. I agree. Yeah. And it's going to start with somebody like you and like Chris's story and Mark Valenzuela and others that I have traveling and teaching. And, um, you know, yeah. as we wrap this up, we're going to have to have you back because there's still so much stuff I want to I want to get on recording. Yeah, we'll just keep I collecting have, stories. You know, yeah. Well, my hope is uh, somebody out there listening today maybe thinks that they're a freak you know i've got this going on in my head i'm telling you or i'm the all only of one. us yes go through different things and if you're one of these that say no i've never felt this i've never questioned it consider yourself yourself. fortunate i think be prepared for there's always a storm yeah so uh you know what don't be quick to criticize everybody deals with it differently most importantly have a conversation uh a good start is like I said, I, I I love my men's group that I go That's to awesome. on on Saturday practice. Get into something like that, or at a minimum, talk to somebody that truly is a friend. Yes, they can look at you, and if something's wrong, have the guts to tell you. You know what? You need help. Mm-hmm. And again, that's why we're here. Call us at Under the Shield. We're available twenty four seven. We have stress coaches all over the country and Canada. What's that number? And the number is eight five five eight eight nine two three four eight. I will give you my personal cell. Area code 334-324-3570. You can call, reach out for help. We never ask for anything that identifies you. We protect you even when you call the 855 number. When you do that, it routes through our office in Mesa. The crisis line is what pops up on our cell phones. We don't even have your number. So if you get disconnected from us, call us back because we don't have a way to reach you. You can call, you can be President Joe Biden, you can be your sheriff, you can be your chief. We don't care what your name is. Reach out for help. Yep. Chuck, thank you very much. Thanks for having me We're going to have you back on here. And again, I'm going to have you in a, in a training and we'll put it out there uh, for those in the podcast to go, I want to go to a training where he's going to be. I don't want to hear her. I like that she's I gone from... Him. I like that she's gone from politely asking you to you join know, I, her well, to I have to tell demanding. People stuff. Yeah, I tell people stuff all the time. And uh, so uh, anyway, but we appreciate all of you tuning in and not sure where we're headed with the. Well, next week we're probably going to be off because I'm out teaching in Alabama all week. Um, maybe we'll re-air one of our other. Yeah, we'll figure something out. Yep, we'll figure out something. But we will be back in two weeks for sure. And. It'll be a surprise guest because we'll both be surprised too to find out who it's going to be. <laughs> right on. Yep. So, Ace, good to see you. Yep. As always, you Chuck, again, nice thank you very you. much. You too, Chuck. Thanks. And, it was a good um, story. Yeah, we appreciate y'all tuning in and hope you'll be back with us again. Share this. Make sure you hit, what is it, on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. They can hit. They can like it. They can like it. Is mm-hmm. that what it is? Thumbs up or like it or something. Okay. And then share it, please. All right, good. Cool. Thanks, guys. Everybody have a good one. See you later. Bye.